Hi, I'm Susan Clark. And I'm Chris Marie Campbell. Welcome to the Beauty of Conflict podcast. Have you ever wanted to take some of what you've learned on the podcast to the next level? Well, check out our new step-by-step, easy-to-use team kit to get your team from avoiding conflict to discovering the beauty in conflict. To learn more, go to www.thriving.com forward slash team kit. That's www.thriveinc.com forward slash T-E-A-M-K-I-T. Hi, I'm Chris Marie Campbell. And I'm Susan Clark. And today we're going to talk about the pain and the price of objectification. And we'll even talk about, well, what is objectification? We're going to get to that. But even why this came up, Susan, you are engaged in a program called Leadership Flathead. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the program and what happened on Friday for you? Okay. So Leadership Flathead is a two-year program for people in leadership roles or wanting to be more engaged in leadership in the Flathead Valley where I live. Montana. In Montana. (laughs) And the program, the first year, engaged each, it involves a commitment in each month, one Friday every month, we get together and we're covering certain key elements of our community. Like one time it was all about education and another time it was about infrastructure. And uh, another time it was about the medical and healthcare aspects. And And this Friday? (laughs) (laughs) This Friday it had to do with social programs and and also law enforcement and various aspects of the community. And what happened, I think the reason this podcast has come up is, you know, some of the things we talked about were these situations that to me, as I was there on Friday, I saw myself run through the gamut of objectification, I guess you could say. Or- well, let's, let's just step back then before you talk too much more about Friday and what is objectification and, you know, in the context that we're talking about? Well, I think of it, I mean, it's easy Objectification means to objectify something, to turn it into an object. And so in some respects, you could think of it as to dehumanize it, as in you and I as beings, Mm. human beings, um, and turn it into an object. Make it something that is not alive, you know. So I think I think we do that like when we talk about roles that people are in, like the doctor or a police officer or even a letter carrier. They become an object. We do that when we're growing up. Mom, dad, yes, yes, <laughs> we don't even know their names. They yes. just are these uh, these um, objects that are there to fill a role for us. Exactly, and the, you know, and the other side of that is being personal or human, and and realizing, and that involves more vulnerability and more revelation about who you are versus an object. You can sort of stay in that role as that being the definition of who you are. I have to say, this was a new concept when I met you 20 some odd, 24 years ago for myself, because I thought of myself as here, I'm a consultant or I'm a daughter. And, and actually in the consulting realm, there was nothing, I didn't share anything personal about myself. I was supposed to serve the client and that's what I did. And who I was really didn't exist. And even when I became a leader at Haven up in British Columbia, like you were saying, the key is you want to lead as a human and and your role. So it wasn't, I think I had gotten into, I'm either this or I'm 
I'm a human and and the human was really screwed up and I didn't want to be that. So I was going to be the perfect consultant or yes. leader. I mean, that happens in any role. I mean, I think even as a marriage and family therapist and in that world, it was often, you know, as in, in training, it was keep yourself out of the relationship, have it be you're there them. for the person. And that is very, I mean, there's, there's still, there's, elements of that world that have actually brought it into more the human side of it. But it's a tricky one, you know, and medical models, doctors. It's so funny because when we were starting to do more of the work that we do in corporations, it was based on research from the medical model that when doctors kind of made a mistake and they hid, they did not apologize. They did not acknowledge fault. They did not acknowledge fault. Then the lawsuits were even greater. And what actually really started to shift is when a doctor could be more human, bring that personal side in and say, Hey, I made a mistake. And that created the connection. Yes. And there are so many ways in which objectification comes into play throughout the course of just a day. So <laughs> back to my Friday. Yes. I'll go back to Friday. So Friday. Inquiring um, minds want to talk. Okay. <laughs> well, there are a couple things and I, I don't know if you wanted me to go to talking about the jail, but before I go there, I want to talk about the flow of the day because we also had a canine, the dog unit come in with, it's always the dog that gets the glory. And, uh, <laughs> but it's a police officer. But it the was, dog. yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, the, the dogs are related, all of the dogs in this particular department are related to narcotics and finding narcotics and investigating narcotics. And this gentleman was explaining to us how that worked with his dog. And I so, one, I so appreciated seeing and hearing this story evolve. And also, though, I could see just how drug addiction and addictions become a very fast track to going to a dehumanization process. You mean uh, other people judging addicts as not really even humans anymore? or And possibly even themselves, themselves continuing down a process that yeah. is all about getting a gain that they can't even understand while they're getting it, you know? And I think outside you look at it and you think, why is this person continuing to do this to their body, you know, and I could even hear it a little bit in this officer's like, you've done this a long time. And I could see the pain point where the empathy for this person may be getting lost, the dehumanization process. Which, you know, makes sense if you see police officers uh, who come upon the same scenario over and over again, and maybe they give somebody the benefit of the doubt again and again and again. And then finally, it's just, oh my gosh, they keep letting me down. I got to close my heart and, tr and distance yeah. myself and treat them as an object. Yeah. And then, of course, on the other side of that, we as people in, in a community can dehumanize police officers and right. they're all making the same mistake. And this, you know, they don't know. And it's, we have gotten into such a culture where that is such a big element that goes on. And it started with the drug on uh, Friday, on Friday mm -hmm. with the, with this experience with the narcotics. And then we had um, some of the social programs in our community on a panel. And so there was a, a woman from the domestic violence who runs a shelter and deals with domestic violence. There was somebody there who dealt with homeless youth and another person who dealt with homelessness and someone else who dealt with teens in crisis in the justice, restorative justice system. And what's really struck me about how each of them spoke was how they also shared the biggest challenge is these are people who are already in a very 
marginalized state for one reason or another, and they can't get housing and they can't. And we're trying to solve an affordable housing project and we want to take them far away from the services that they need. Like we're not thinking holistically. holistically. And these people have been very dehumanized to some degree. I can imagine people, we don't even want to see them. Like, can I pretend they're not there because it makes my life easier if they're not there? I admit, like when I, when I, when when we were in San Francisco the last time and there were people yelling and screaming on the streets was very, I could feel my heart kind of ache, but I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I knew that they were in a state that was not really contactable, but I also had my own desire to, okay, I don't know how to deal with this. And I just watch people just go by, by, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that must be our own helplessness, like, because how would we step in? So it's easier to pretend or make them an object. That's just a crazy person. and I'm going to get away because it keeps my psyche safer. Right. Then to actually see that is a person in pain and they need help. And what can I do to make make that happen? And then, yeah, you know, and I'm not, I wish we were going to tell you that we were going to talk about how to have solutions to some of these things we're talking about today. I don't know that we're going to have that, but because I don't know how to resolve that when I'm in a situation where I I don't know how to make contact with that person. But and then, so this was the evolution of the day. And another part of the day was we went and visited the jail. And that was probably where I really think I got how dehumanized I even experienced myself going into that situation. Susan, it was sounded like it was a, a rough experience for you. Oh, it was very, I mean, you know, one, we were a fairly large group in a in a small indoor setting. In the, it, there were so many elements to this experience of going into the jail that were just not, I've kind of felt like I was in a scared straight program. <laughs> um, and I- Didn't they take all of your belongings? Yeah, and- you had to give, turn everything over. You know, we have little name tags on our jackets. We had to take those off because they had pens. And then we were told about the type of clients- Clients? Of people that were in the jails. But in the storytelling and in the whole experience, I just, I couldn't help but think these people are no longer people. They're kind of inmates. They're, you know, and I could, uh, objects. And, and I think, you know, you could even see that the people who were the deputies there in the jail were objects to the inmates. You know, it's, it's like an incredible experience of dehumanization. Well, they they even show they've done, uh, I forget the psychology experiment, but they did it at a college where they set up a, these were all college, you know, sophomores, juniors, whatever. And some were picked to be the jailers and some were picked to be the prisoners. And quite quickly, people adopted the roles and really felt like us and them. And like when we're put in that scenario, even people who haven't been you know, we, I could imagine some people saying, well, they deserve to be in there. They've lost their rights. But even people that have all those rights put in that role, forget how to create that human connection. Right. It's you not know. about that. And, you know, I mean, there were so many elements to it, like the realization that these people who are being asked to kind of govern and take care of this facility and the people in it were probably the lowest paid people mm. 
Like, really? These are people who have a, a pretty important role and somebody who's a barista at a coffee shop gets paid more. No wow. wonder it's a dehumanization process, you yeah. know, even um, for the guards that yeah, work there. Yeah. And wow. so I kind of walked away just feeling like, well, we do have a system that is very broken, mm -hmm. you know, and I think so many of our systems are broken because of that dehumanization process. You know, and, and that we're talking about like one end of societal's society, Susan, like the, where people are in prison, but this process happens even on the other end, all our heroes, me as an Olympic athlete, mm -hmm. movie stars, the process of me becoming an Olympic athlete, I definitely objectified myself and was not allowed to complain to myself and push myself. And, and I was only good if I produced a result. And the fact that we lost at the Olympics was such a shame experience. Mm -hmm. I remember speaking at an event, you were there, and I remember speaking at an event and I talked about, this was to a group of rowers, which winning is so revered. Mm -hmm. And I talked about losing at the Olympics. I think you said you could hear a pin drop, like no, like it was like all the air got sucked out of the room. It was like I was being uh, talking about heresy. Yeah. And, um, and then at the end, all these people lined up, like secretly wanting to talk to me yeah. about their own experience of loss, of failure, mm -hmm. because our society so reveres heroes, but both the hero and the person who fails are both, uh, we're, I'm objectifying myself when I make myself a hero or a failure. Yes. And, you know, I, I don't know when we talk about this in our model, which I, I want to make sure not all of our listeners may have be familiar with our model, but the we, beauty of conflict, beauty of conflict. But we talk about this idea that we are always sort of grappling with our emotions, our opinions, our thought process, and then this desire for something, you know, those three things are kind of a, a key element well, of, in our relationships In our relationships. Yes. But those things are always going on. And there's a tension that becomes inherent to trying to interact with the world. We call it the me, what's going on inside of me, my, my feelings, my thoughts, and then what's going on with this other person who I'm in relationship with. And then what's the current situation we're grappling with? Yes. And that, that's going through the whole relational model around oh, conflict. Sorry. I was, I was also saying, I was, Chris Marie jumped in terms ahead of <laughs> how we process information inside ourselves. We are always having these thoughts, these, this emotional content and these desires. Right. And that in and of itself creates an incredible amount of tension. Mm -hmm. And we tend like you right now uh, can really relate to this. There's always a conflict between our head and our heart. Mm -hmm. And there's a, great, or there often is, there often is. And, you know, our gut usually pays the price if we don't actually find a way to connect that yeah. gap. And what's, it's interesting, Susan, the piece that we're so in our blind spot is basically our brain and our, what we call our personal filter in our model, that's sorting and creating this is good and that is bad. And it's mm -hmm. doing it automatically. And mm -hmm. if we don't, like, we're just on autopilot unless we stop and, and look at how are we processing this incoming information. Right. And I mean, we need that filter. So it's not that the filter's bad or any of that. It's just, if we don't understand it and we don't have some consciousness about it, it just runs us, Yes, you know? And so at any time we have new incoming information, it goes through our system in a fairly rude way unless, and then at some point we may have an experience. Maybe it's a sensation. Like for me in the prison, I was like, I could faint. And then I knew I need to get out of here. Something has happened that is 
motivating me to need to, I paid attention to the symptom and I just asked if I could be escorted out. Yeah. And that was a good choice for me. (laughs) Um, Glad you got out of the prison. So it may be that, or it may be like a flash of like rage, which is not like a thought about, you know, this person is so wrong. But if I don't see that as just That's don't a act thought on it, connected yeah. to an emotion, connected to the emotion. If I don't just act on that, I got to get rid of this, but be like, okay, that's a signal. That's a sign. Something is happening in the system that is different than the root normal. That's when I can have a choice. What do I want to do with that? And separate, go into separation or go into wholeness, which is what we talk about when we say in any interaction, having consciousness about my situation, the me, the we, and the overall situation I'm in. So because I interrupted you, Susan, I want to try to reflect this back to see if I got it (laughs) because I took us off on the wrong way. But what you're saying is we're having these thoughts, these emotions, and, and we have desires. And what's in the background is also our personal filter that in our brain, that's kind of Mm -hmm. automatically going down these neural circuits. And what you're saying is, hey, if I can see my reaction, if I can start to develop a curious observer and start to witness myself and use my sense of like you, Susan, at the prison about to faint, you're like, okay, that's a red flag. I need to do something. Or the kind of hot anger that comes up. Oh, that's a red flag. Wait a minute. Something's going on. Get curious about it Mm -hmm. and take a different action, not just let it run you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's it. Those are kind of the interrupters that that I'm familiar with. (laughs) And we all have those types of signals. Yeah. And often we make them wrong. And are like, okay, that, you know, even anxiety, which is something that right now we're wrestling with is, you know, because teens are having tons of anxiety. And it's not that anxiety is really the problem. It's our relationship to that anxiety. And it's not about getting rid of the anxiety. The anxiety might be a very appropriate mechanism for getting attention, your attention. Um, but if you get make it wrong and try to get rid of it, that anxiety just increases and actually does become more of a problem. So if you have, it's kind of the feeling about the feeling. If you're having like, oh my gosh, this is a bad feeling I'm having. You're really stopping any sort of possibility of like, well, wait a minute, what is this about? And how can I do something different? Yeah. More curious and observing. Because most of, you know, our ability to have anxiety and react to a dangerous situation was a survival technique that was critical to our survival and evolution. There's no Mm -hmm. doubt about that. Yes. And there's also little doubt that there's probably not very many saber-toothed tigers or anything else that are still out there. (laughs) But the same system is in place. And so anxiety is more of a danger, danger, something is happening. And if we don't get panicked about, oh, it must be bad, life Mm -hmm. or death, that's just how that system operates. Yeah. You though have some, you know, and can have some choice about, okay, wait a minute, let me breathe. What is happening right now? I tell you, this is a big part of the rewiring process that I'm going through for my my limbic system impairment, which is basically uh, like a brain injury and actually noticing and not making wrong, but interrupting Mm -hmm. and making a different choice, not going down, not allowing that trauma loop to complete and interrupting it. And, you know, I love, because you're doing this process right now that involves quite a commitment Christmary, each day, like you're, because the whole idea is that if you don't do this with enough repetition over enough time, you won't integrate it into it. Because those old habits have been there. They're like, yeah. Well, it's like riding a bike. Well, it's probably, or playing a piano. 
and becoming, it takes a lot of repetition. Yeah. Right. And I remember even for myself, you know, when I went to Haven and that, you know, the, the suggestion to the takeaway more so than just coming back to Haven again, which is not a bad take. That's good for Haven. But, <laughs> but the takeaway for me was to breathe every day. And I don't know how hard it is. At the time, it wasn't hard for me to get that because well, it was life or death. Yeah, you exactly. Know? You had high stakes. I, I had high stakes. But how hard it is to get people to incorporate a simple breathing, a practice around breath or a practice around meditation, something else that would be an embodied practice around meditation that actually helps you get in touch with sensations in your body and what's going on. But people don't stay committed to it because our brain has been usually wired from a young age to do something different. Well, it says, hey, I, I learned to keep Chris Marie safe not meditating. So this meditating thing seems very dangerous. Yeah. So I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm going to actually be resistant to it and distract her every way I can. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and yet it's so critical to really, I would say I'm beginning in after my Friday experience, yes. beginning to really see it as these are the elements to what takes me out of objectification into being human. Say more, Susan, well, link, the, link those dots for our listeners. Well, I can, if I, if, if, my old system was like, the best thing to do is run, <laughs> you know, <laughs> exercise, stay fit. And interestingly enough, when a world crisis happens, I usually start picking up weightlifting almost <laughs> unconsciously as though I'm going to speed up the world. Like it's kind of crazy, you know, and yet I see it is my thing. If I'm strong enough, I will survive. I'll be able to survive the attack, which, you know, versus, you know, what I learned if I, that's me becoming the object, I could make my, oh. me as the object stronger, more able to fend, armored, mm -hmm. do what I need to do, smarter. All of those things are an objectification process. And the other way is no, if I actually breathe and sink in and feel that vulnerability, really, which no one really likes, but is I actually am becoming more human and it will have its warts. It's not going to be, I won't be the hero, yeah. <laughs> the hero of my life. Hopefully though, I also won't be the scapegoat at some point when I fall off that hero's pedestal of myself, you know, mm -hmm. like, because being human and gives you an opportunity to kind of ride the waves of it all. Versus... Well, I, I think the being, when you breathe and become more, when I breathe and become more vulnerable and include myself, there's a, a sense of feeling more whole. No, it does. It doesn't have like the big, yeah. But it has this fulfillment sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, I and agree. sense I of fulfillment a, and connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even just recently, we told you, well, even this happened prior to Fridays, but, but we were with another, in another corporate team situation where the team was going through a crisis, a really big disruption in their business. And they were coming together to talk and sort of, and there was a lot of sense of every, I think each member of that team felt like they were on their own island. Yeah. And, you, you know, the leader was kind of like, ah, you guys are just looking out for yourselves type of thing because they're, what ended up coming out was they were all just doing survival mode. And that survival mode is, and, and sometimes it could look like superstar. Sometimes it could look like our accommodator. Sometimes it could look like a separator. Those are all uh, opt-out opt styles in our stress. Yeah. And, but they were totally missing each other. And it wasn't until they each started to take some time to talk about the impact the situation was having on them and then their desire to actually be in connection. And But part of why they were protecting themselves was because it wasn't that they were protecting themselves only. They were trying to protect the other people. Like, well, I don't want to talk about that because <laughs> that's going to put pressure on them. So the best thing to do is work, 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 work. 
And yet the huge, they, they were going down the objectification versus let's humanize this crisis because we may not get out of it the way we, you know, by becoming objects. Yeah. And it was really fascinating to watch first the transactions. They were managing the pieces of the business. the business of what they needed to do, but you could feel the brittleness and the edginess until they actually started to sink in and somebody checked out their story and that person got upset, but then they started to become more real, you know, it, it deepened, deepened, deepened. And I think in the end, they didn't feel so alone and felt more connected, which really a lot of times we think is not an important thing. And sometimes it's everything. It is. I'm, I'm, Chris Marie, I'm sitting here sort of hesitating because it, you know, I really sometimes want to bring in the word of intimacy more to the, to business because that notion of intimacy, we all crave intimacy and intimacy is intimacy, the willingness to be revelatory about who I am. So someone can see me. It's not about sex or this or that or anything else. It's about the knowing of another. And when you think about that in the realm of relationships, in the realm of business, in the realm of jails, in the realm of anything, that intimacy is critical mm -hmm. to the keeping the humanizing process that we need to have in so many things that get objectified. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, going, um, I, I want to go to the business piece because I think there's people who are like, well, I want you to see me a little bit, not too much. And then <laughs> Um, and then, because I only want you to see really the good side yep. of me, the hero part of me. And then even in the jail setting, it's like, well, no, I've been damaged too many times or hurt too many times. I'm not going to let you see me or anybody who's armored. It's just not worth it. But I do get underlying what we really crave is that intimacy, that sense of connection, mm -hmm. acknowledgement. I belong, I matter, I'm special and I matter, but... Yeah. You know, even in my experience on Friday, initially, I felt this shame well up in me because I had to ask, I feel teary saying like I had to be asked to be taken out. Mm -hmm. Like I saw it as something is wrong with me. This was, you know, but, you know, when I was back outside and had some breath air and wasn't faint, you know, <laughs> I also could feel myself starting to separate because the rest of the group came out. And then I realized, wait a minute, you know, you don't need, don't go there. And so I started to actually share a little of what was going on for me, come to find out there were a number of people that had experienced some of that same thing in this situation, but no one was talking about that. Mm. And how, and I don't know, I've spent a lot of my life feeling different or outside of things because of some of my journey and story and whatever. And this just reminded me that it's probably been me that's taken me out for so many years, mm. you know, and that sometimes you know, maybe rejoining is the risk of you'll be the one who's the odd man out, or maybe you'll actually discover that there's many more people that are wrestling with the same thing. Susan, I think that's so true. I think when we experience trauma, it's a separation. It's a separation from another person, but, and then we separate our inside, like, oh, that's a bad thing. I'm never going to look at that again or do mm -hmm. that again. And the very fact that you reconnected was such a healing, such a different process to reconnect and be willing to reveal this is what was going on. And then having the empathy and the connection of like, me too. Oh my gosh, that's my experience. And, you we know? Had, and then with some of my colleagues, I was able to have a conversation that, you know, helped me understand because maybe next year, 
going to the jail will be a good idea, but from a different context. Let's put it in a context that actually helps make sense. Well, you were the one that actually said, I thought this was really like, why were we going to the jail? We had no, and really it came about as, we don't know. Somebody told us a couple of years ago that it was a really great idea. So we just did it, but they didn't pay attention (laughs) to it. Yeah, they hadn't done it. And so they didn't know the why and how so much of helping people connect is sharing why this is so important and putting it in context. Yeah. You know, again, this is how we got to today's podcast. (laughs) Hopefully a little rambly road, but how, and just pay attention in your day about when are you objectifying either yourself or others and when and how do you bring yourself to being more personal and see if you notice the rewards of either at times. Yeah. Yeah. And really how you can bring into that personal, the first step is just taking a breath because you, when you take a breath, a conscious breath, deeper breath into your low belly, you're making a choice to connect to you. And then you'd be surprised at what will come out you enjoyed this episode. Susan here. As a coach, a lot of my time is spent helping clients speak up in a direct and honest way in their relationships at home and at work. Chris Marie and I decided to create a speak up kit to help you do that for yourself. It's the best of our best work that we've gathered to help you. To learn more, go to thriveinc.com forward slash speak up. That's www. T-H-R-I-V-E-I-N-C dot C-O-M forward slash S-P-E-A-K-U-P.